Hi, Simon Hill here. Enjoy our podcast. If you'd like to help us keep delivering the sort of quality football chat you want, then you can show your support by making a donation. Big or small, however much you can afford, we appreciate all your help and every cent will be ploughed back into improving production. Thanks in advance from all of us at Shim, Spider and so much more. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. It's Craig Moore. What a piece. Beautifully struck home by Craig Moore. And the Australian supporters go wild in Stuttgart. Why not? You're with Shim, Spider, and so much more. Take it away, fellas. Yeah, greetings to you. Episode 18 of Shim, Spider, and so much more coming your way. A bumper edition today as we dissect the news that miracle of miracles, it's finally happened. The A-League and W-League have been unbundled from FFA. What does it mean? Is this liftoff or just another false dawn? We'll assess it all with Zelko Kalats and Craig Moore and a little later on, one of Zelko's charges at Zanti FC, Josh Berlante, is our special guest. First of all, though, a big hello to Spider and Maury. Maury, you, you gave me some good quotes for a piece I wrote on Optus this week on the Rangers revival, but uh, you, you're trying to be a bit cagey, aren't you? You're trying not to jump the gun on the Jers title chances over there in Scotland. Yeah, thanks, mate. I did give you some nice quotes. Um, but, yeah, look, I mean, Rangers have got off to a fantastic start, Simon. They really have. 8-0 today to Hamilton Ackies at home, a huge result. Um, but the trophies are handed out in May, which is, is what, I, what I said to you. We've had good starts the last couple of seasons and after the winter break, which won't happen this year, um, Rangers haven't gone on with the job. But what we've seen so far this season, Simon, they're, they're looking very strong and, and have got a, a really deep squad, which I think has um, certainly put Rangers in a, in a better position to have title success this year. And Spider, what's the latest in, in lockdown in Greece and the start of the Super League 2 season? Weren't you supposed to be up and running this weekend? We were supposed to play on Sunday. Uh, we, we had another friendly match, which we won, which is a positive. Uh, now, apparently, we're starting next week. So, so fingers crossed uh, that we're starting next week. We, we will get an answer, I think, on Tuesday. Right. It's going to be like that last minute. Brilliant. Um, all right, let's get into it then with uh, Simon Says, which for this week is going to be combined with Hard Talk. Simon Says. Hard Talk. Our Hard Talk is brought to you by Streamgate, which has been live streaming since 2008, specialising in custom-built stream pages, pay-per-view and multi-language streaming. They can cater to large online conferences with multiple simultaneous streams and destinations, including all social media channels servicing clients Australia-wide. Go to streamgate.com.au or you can find them on Instagram. So, as we say, this segment is going to be a bit different this week. We thought the story of the unbundling of the A-League from FFA warranted an extended chat, so that's what we're going to do. In case you missed it, FFA CEO James Johnson announced late on Friday via his weekly video message that the separation had finally happened with the agreement of the governing body, the clubs and the member federations, and that the A-League and W-League would be separate entities in time for the kickoff to the new season. 
Intriguingly, for me at least, that news, potentially huge for the landscape here, was hidden away in the final 30 seconds of a briefing that also included details on the performance gap report and news of the Oli Roos playing two friendly games. Now, my understanding of the situation is that there's still a long-form agreement to be drawn up, but that the key terms of the unbundling were agreed to on Friday, hence the rather understated nature of the announcement. So, Maury, let's start with you. One of the key terms is that FFA becomes the regulator of the A-League, responsible for, for licensing, expansion, setting of criteria for access to and from the A-League, and that the A-League gets, or the clubs, get the responsibility for commercialising the game, raising investment and competition management. So is, is, this, uh, is this what we've been after all these years? Is this the answer or is this just the start? Uh, look, I think it is a, a pivotal moment for the game, but uh, you know, I do believe that it is just a start, uh, Simon. I mean, FFA, with regards to controlling the, the licensing expansion, uh, and the likes it is is a good fit. That's what they should be doing. Coach development uh, and the, the whole idea of the separation or the drive for the clubs to separate was so that they could realise uh, their commercial opportunities, which was kind of done through a centralised system prior. Um, so this gives the clubs a really good opportunity to to, to find their feet, Simon, commercially. Um, look, we still. We still need to understand a little bit more in terms of what the the competition management looks like, um, and and who is going to be a part of that committee, because we we spoke a couple of weeks ago about what was happening in England, Project Big, I believe it was called, or Big Project, big, big where projects, big projects, yeah, yeah. So don't want to find ourselves in a situation, do we? I mean, it's a question also to you and Spider, where all of a sudden we've got the top four, five, six clubs controlling everything that happens within the game. So who is going to be between the, you know, the clubs and the, the, the running of the, the league? You've got the judicial system, all these kind of things that would need to be taken care of. So still a lot to learn, I think, Simon, on this. Yeah. So you're saying that you'd really you'd, you'd prefer an independent commission maybe to, to sit in between uh, the independent A-League and the FFA? I, I think that... I mean, personally, to me, I think that makes sense. I, what, what do you think on that? Yeah, I, I, I think that's a possibility as well, Simon, to be fair. Mm-hmm. I think the the clubs, now that they've got the independence, I'm, I'm sure they will set something up like that. But obviously, we, we still don't know uh, the big picture of it. But I'm sure something like that will be set out. And in all the in all the countries around the world, we have the big four or five teams. In Australia, we only have 12. So we're still really going to have big four or five teams. We just want to see the smaller ones grow to actually make more of a challenge. My, my concern, I think, is commercially, in the short term at least, particularly in such a different, um, a difficult market with COVID, uh, and we know that the other codes dominate in Australia as well, essentially the clubs have had that commercial freedom for quite some time not necessarily in, in legal name, but they've been given a lot more responsibility to, to drive the commercial framework of the game. And yet we are still six weeks out from the A-League season without a naming rights sponsor. Um, that, that to me is, is a concern and suggests that maybe it's not quite going to be as easy as maybe a few people think. Not that I think most clubs thought it was going to be easy. Um, it's still... There's still, there's still some challenges, you're right. And, and look, the, the times financially, COVID, uh, look, corporate dollars uh, are very, very difficult at the best of times to, to try and achieve and now uh, even tougher. So, yeah, interest, interesting, Simon, definitely. But this is what the clubs have wanted for, for a long time. So now the onus is on them uh, to go out and make it a success. So, uh, yeah, they will be held to account on that regard. Spider, I want to ask you... Um, in turn, this frees up the FFA, of course, from their obligations to, to run the ALO, or, or will do. Um, James Johnson hinted now that they would be free to be innovative, and, and shorn of that responsibility, they'd potentially be able to turn their attentions to, for example, setting up a national second division, which is what we all want. Yeah, yeah, and this is something I think uh, Dave Davidovich wrote a great article about it as well. Um, 
it's something that they can really concentrate on. I think there was talks of 2022 of wanting to set that up, which is, I think, a great timeline, which we always spoke about the timelines because it really gives them one full year now to, to prepare themselves for that and to actually get the clubs who really want to participate to make sure that they're structurally ready to go into the second division. Maury, um, the, the member federations uh, in, in agreeing this deal have, as I understand it, insisted upon the FFA retaining the key principles that they agreed to back in July 2019. There still seems to me to be an element of, of nervousness, suspicion even, that the clubs will, once they have the power, just do what's, what's best for them. Is, is that fair? Well, what the, the member feds have insisted upon FFA retaining the key principles in the deal. What what does that mean? <laughs> I, I don't know, Maury. I think, I think in, in 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 essence, it's about um, you know the, the good of the of the overall game, not just the health of of the national leagues. I think that's something that the member feds have probably quite rightly been, you know, keen to to say try and safeguard via the FFA. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, my, my one thing is, Simon, and I've done a look, we, we've, we've all seen and, and read the 11 principles that the, that the FFA um, issued uh, a good few months ago now. But I keep coming back to, to principle seven. Um, and bear with me a little bit here. It's the whole of football approach to protecting and enhancing the game through modern, efficient and effective governance. Now, I've not heard anything, Simon, being said in this space uh, in terms of the unbundling is, is, is about the separation. And these are kind of things that were already in place prior to James Johnson coming in. They were already in motion. One last thing I want to read out and, and for any listener that's out there, please have a, have a read uh, of principle seven, because I just believe that it's a principle that's in there that's been totally ignored. COVID-19 has exposed the underlying fragilities of the current governance framework of football in Australia and highlights the urgent need for transformation towards a modernised governance framework that better serves the game today. In this light, a shift towards a one football model in line with global standards and best practice sports governance in Australia could reduce the duplication and inefficiencies that hinder the current framework and provide the game with better prospects to maximise its opportunities and protect it against threats and risks. Most importantly, it could also see football make significant cost savings, estimated to be in excess of $20 million, to improve the opportunity for more effective spending across all levels of the game. A shift to this type of model could also re result in millions of dollars of new revenue via whole of game deals. Yeah. The reason why I wanted to read that, Simon, is because we still haven't addressed what role and, and what is going to be done with the member federations. What should be done, in your opinion? Well, I think that clearly we've touched on, a, I don't know how many times, that it, it needs to be streamlined. We need to have discussions about what the current member federations look like and what they should look like. We know that, you know, there's 10 different legal entities, there's 10 different chairs, there's over, over like there's 70 or so directors, 10 different strategic plans, um, 10 different audited accounts. Uh, the, list, the list goes on. Um, you do still need local representation, though, don't you? I think, that, I think that is clear, that they have to exist in some Yes, and Simon, we've never, ever, ever said that the member federations are no longer required. Yeah. What people are, are, are for me, ice skating around about is what is going to be done. And this is, for me, is James Johnson's job. How are you going to reduce the cost of football administration in the game in Australia? And how can those savings then passed on to the thousands and thousands of people's families that play the game and more importantly for Australian football to be able to find ways to invest and develop a better future. Spot on. Well let's let's see if, uh, if James Johnson and the FFA are able to uh, modernise or change the, the game's governance. I know that's certainly a priority of the governing body 
uh, once the unbundling was was resolved, which it now is. And Spider, I want to ask you about uh, another one of the things the FFA wants to do to um, bridge the gap in anticipation of a, a national second division, uh, and that's to expand the FFA Cup and, and introduce a half spot for the Champions League for the winners. Uh, on paper, that's a great incentive for the MPL clubs, but there is a catch, and I'm, I'm not sure some people are aware of this. Any clubs competing in the, in the Champions League, indeed, even in the domestic top flight itself, you've got to adhere to the AFC club licensing regulations, um, which contains a lot of stuff, uh, includes things such as proper accreditation for coaches, high performance units, stadiums, etc., etc. Are MPL clubs in a position to, to meet those requirements, do you think? At the moment, I would say no. Uh, but if you had a second division, I'm I'm sure that all the second division clubs would be able to adhere to that 100%, especially having an opportunity to to possibly get into a Champions League. I mean, the FFA Cup in itself, I think, has been the one fantastic thing that has been produced by the FFA. It, it has been an unbelievable cup. It's uh, rejuvenated... The big against smaller, David versus Goliath competition. Uh, as we've seen, only an A-League club has, has won it so far. But the State yeah. League clubs are getting closer and closer. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And, and just, just sorry, Simon, just one, one final thing there. In terms of the, they're looking to introduce potentially a half spot for uh, the ACL. <clears throat> Again, you'll know the coefficient, depending on how Australian teams actually perform within the, the competition... Over a period of time, that affects the actual positions that you have to qualify for. Yeah, and, yeah. And our recent our recent performances in the in the, the that that's there for a potential change as well, isn't it? In terms of less positions. Yep, yep, that's true. Uh, as things stand, we could be down to um, one automatic spot. I think as soon as twenty twenty three, but we shall uh, see. There is talk, of course, of expanding the Champions League or changing the format. Uh, who knows what will happen post-COVID. They're struggling just to get the current <laughs> Champions League season finished. Um, just by extension of the FFA Cup that we were talking about, um, due to the anticipated gap in seasons between the upcoming campaign, 2020-21, and then the next one in 2021-22, which might might not start until February or even March 2022. So that's a, that's a long gap between uh, June 21 and, and then. The FFA reportedly looking at introducing a League Cup competition as well as the expanded FFA Cup. Uh, maybe the top 20 MPL clubs along with uh, the 12 A-League clubs. That'd be fun as well, Spider. I, I think that's fantastic. I think all, all these things are, are fantastic. The more games you play the more competition you get, the more of these guys that are playing in the MPL, say we say it's a second division at the moment all over all over Australia, gives them opportunities for these A-League clubs to see them. And you know what? I, The way I see it, the more games these players play at any level, it's a bonus for everyone. Yeah, no, Spides, I, I love it, Simon. I love the, I love the concept of a, of a new cup. Um, in a in a, a a group style formation, extra games like like Spider said. Uh, unfortunately, at some stage we were going to have a gap uh, that needed to be filled, and I think um, I think this is a wonderful idea, and I'd love to see it happen. I, I think uh, everybody is probably in agreement with that. A couple more before we finish this particular segment. Um, Spider, I want to ask you about uh, Andrew Redmayne has uh, announced that he's not going to go to Qatar to play in the Asian Champions League with Sydney FC. His, his wife is, is pregnant. He doesn't want to, uh, to leave his wife. Um, so he's going to stay in Australia. Um, what, are your, what are your thoughts on, on that? I just, not against Andrew in particular, but you know, the, the, the principle of the fact that uh, you, you, know, you, you miss a tournament because you, you're, you're expecting a child. Yeah, I, I know, and it's it's a difficult one. Uh, yeah, I was away when both my kids were born, so I mean, I understand it. Maury, you would understand it. In Europe, it wouldn't happen for some reason. In Australia, it happens quite quite often, uh, and I don't understand it because realistically, these guys are professional players. They have a duty to do for the clubs that they're under contract with, and it'd be very disappointing for Sydney FC thinking they're going to an ACL without their 
number one goalkeeper because possibly he could miss uh, the birth of his child because I've seen what Red has said. Realistically, they should be back in time. He's not sure, so he prefers not to play. But, I mean, this is it just shows a little bit of the times and the way things are. It wouldn't have happened 10 years ago, five years ago. But the times have changed. Spides, I, I remember we got a great result away to Hungary. Uh, and I'm sure you'll remember that trip. We had a, had a bit of fun after a good result. Um, <laughs> mate, is that not... Um, I remember uh, Bill Collins, who unfortunately is no longer with us, ha- having a, to, to chap, chap your door and say, uh, big man, that's, uh, you've got to get on immediately a flight back home that your missus is going into labour. Yeah, no, I got home and it'd been like she'd been shopping, mate. I got back home and uh, I got home, there was a little daughter there. I said, where'd you go to Woolworths? <laughs> it was gold, Maury. As I said, it wouldn't have happened back in our days. But yeah, I, I look, it's a, strange, it's a strange one. I get it. People want to be there for, for the birth of their child. But mate, I sort of say, well, the woman's given the birth, mate. You just got to come home and be there and see it. I don't know. <laughs> Man of your time, Spider. Um, let's move on from that. Maury, ask you uh, about this one. This could be a, a long answer, but try and circumvent that if you can. Uh, FFA released the performance gap report this week. We have touched upon these issues before on the pod. Uh, identifying critical gaps in the player development pathway for Australia's national uh, elite players. It includes, of course, the lack of high-level match minutes for youth players, the need for more games and camps for the national youth teams. These, these are not new issues. Um, the proposals to alleviate this, including, and we know this already, lifting the age restrictions for A-League teams uh, competing in the NPL to the under-23s, uh, and for the NPL 1 men's and boys competitions involving players over 17 uh, to be expanded to 30 games a season is that the right approach, and is what uh, FCA Football Coaches Australia President Phil Moss calls a lost generation in the early to mid twenties range? Is is that right? What Moss is yeah, saying? Yeah, no, it, it is right, Simon. And I, I think look, the most important thing with this, I mean, they can research themselves to their blue in their face. We've all known the reasons why uh, we've not been developing players. Um, it's important that everybody buys into this. Um, and when I say everybody, I mean, you know, club coaches uh, is also very, very important. This is not a criticism of the current national team coach, Graham Arnold, but you remember when he was at Sydney FC and he kind of said, well, I'm not going to play young players. I'm going to go with an experienced team because I'm here to win trophies. So, again, I, I totally understand where Arnie was coming from at that particular time. But what I'm saying is we need, we need buy-in from everybody involved in Australian football for this to, to truly work and um, to be able to expose these younger players uh, to, to many more games, to, to senior opportunities as quick as we can is going to put us in a, in a far better position uh, moving forward over the, the next five to, to 20 years, Simon. So it's just important that everybody buys into it though. Yeah. Anything to add? 100%. Yeah, no, no more, more is spot on there. And the other thing that I heard just recently, Simon, you would know better because you're back there. Uh, the under-23s uh, Olympic team are playing two matches, right, That's against right. Sydney FC and MacArthur. And I heard that they're selling tickets for these games. Why would you sell tickets for these games? Why wouldn't you open the doors up and get as many people as you can in? There's still restrictions get those points. I think there's still restrictions. Okay, okay but, but why are you charging? Well, I think because there's probably a demand to, to watch these games um, and therefore they probably... Because of the restrictions on numbers, which is three and a half thousand, I suppose, yeah, technically they could give the tickets away for free, but how do you differentiate? And is the MacArthur one not, Simon, the MacArthur one, is that not meant to be a closed door? Uh, that could well be, to be honest. I don't, I'd I, have think, to I think. I think. Yeah. I, think one I know the Sydney game is. Is I think there's three and a half thousand okay. going to be admitted. Yeah, I thought. So. I, I thought I'd seen something maybe about the MacArthur one potentially for whatever reason was. <clears throat> excuse me, was behind behind closed doors, but and that's a fair enough comment, Spides. I think, but I know that uh, small crowds, but certainly there's restrictions there as to why we can't get twenty, thirty thousand in there. Yeah, okay, fair enough. I thought I thought it was opened up to a bigger crowd than that. Sorry. Okay, thanks for the moment, guys. So let's move overseas. London Calling. London Calling 
So let's uh, start off with uh, the Premier League and the big game in England on Sunday, which was uh, Manchester City against Liverpool. Uh, the two teams that are expected to challenge for the title, it ended uh, 1-1. Uh, Jurgen Klopp calling it the toughest away game in the world. Uh, interesting that there's a theme emerging from Klopp, from Guardiola. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has had a pop as well, saying that the scheduling of the games in England at the moment is ridiculous and that the players are, and I quote, on the edge. Um, is this a little bit of self-interest on behalf of, of the managers and this calling for five substitutes again from Guardiola and Klopp? Or, or do they genuinely have a point, in your opinion? Well, maybe they will listen to our podcast about six weeks ago when we called that this was going to happen. So now they're actually starting to use it. Uh, well, not use it in their defence because it's, it's a reality. There's no doubt about it. I mean, if you're on the weekend, both teams played Champions League. This week, they had a cracking game against each other, which I was lucky enough to watch. Uh, Liverpool started off very good. Man City totally took over. Uh, De Bruyne missed a penalty. Both keepers made crucial saves. It was a top-class match for two teams so dominant. But realistically, the players are going to break sooner or later. And as we're seeing and what we've spoken about on the pod forever and a day since it started, the, the team, the, the results are so up and down. There's no consistency. I'll tell you one team that's been consistent is Tottenham. They're getting results week in, week out. Yeah, Leicester as well. But I think Man United, obviously, Ole come out probably the, the, the hardest, Simon, uh, in terms of because they played, what, Wednesday night. They didn't get back until uh, late Thursday because they were in Turkey. And they had a 12.30 kickoff on Saturday morning. So that's the tough one, isn't it? That's the real that, tough one. That's the yeah. real one. So look, I, I, I yeah. you know, we're I mean, a lot more travelled in, in Australia in terms of the Asian Champions League. Less than seventy-two hours um, with the amount of games that these players are, are expected to play now and the level that they're expected to, to play at. He's he lost a couple of players through injury, so I, I, I totally understand it. And it's probably something where we do need to look after the teams that are performing in Europe because, again, no matter what major tom- competition it is in, in, in all parts of the world, you want your teams from your country to be able to perform well. Well, Maury, I, I can just tell you what, what I've seen this weekend over this weekend's games. Like, uh, I watched a lot of the Serie R matches. And, for example, Inter, Inter played a massive game on Wednesday night in Donetsk. And then they come back this week and they, they played again. And he rotated the squad. Like Lukaku was on the bench... So it, it comes down to about the managers really rotating their players uh, and using their squads to, to still get results. You know, the old saying, to win a championship, you're not going to play beautiful every match. Sometimes you just got to roll the sleeves up and get a result and put some players out there. And that's what the good managers are doing. Um, can I ask you guys your thoughts? I mean, you mentioned that a lot of the results are up and down this season, and you're absolutely correct. Southampton went top of the league on Friday. They're not going to Leicester. You look elsewhere in Europe, Sassuolo a second in Italy, uh, Lille and Rennes in France, second and third. Real Sociedad were top in Spain. Is this going to be a year for upsets and, and perhaps you know, some different teams winning the championships across the old continent? Well, possibly, possibly. Well, mate, you just had one there in France. Lille is second. Lille went to the San Siro on Thursday and battered Milan 3-0. And then uh, they lost on the weekend to a little team called Brest. So it, it is an up and down season. And you're, you're spot on, Simon. I, I think we could get some surprises. There's one country I don't think there will be a surprise. Germany. I think Bayern will win by 20 again. Spidey, you mentioned uh, the San Siro there. Story in the Guardian this week. The Italian Heritage Authority has concluded that the San Siro has no cultural interest and can therefore be demolished as Milan, your old club, and Inter look to, uh, to find a new stadium. How does that make you feel? I think that's yeah, ludicrous. Look- it is crazy. And you know what? It's been a long time since I played at Milan and there was talk of it back then, Simon, that that they were going to build a new stadium for for Milan and a new stadium for Inter. And I, I do really think it's about time both big clubs like that have their own stadium. But to knock down the San Siro, would you be okay with that? Uh, I know, but you know... <laughs> 
things have to change. It's, it's an unbelievable stadium. It's a, it's a colossus of a stadium. But I think to, to go forward, like Bayern Munich have done it. The big clubs have done it. Like you look at the Allianz Arena, look at the new Juventus Stadium. It, everything changes. Uh, it has to be done. And two big clubs like Inter and Milan, I think, deserve to have their own stadiums. Well, I, I think that would be uh, terrible for not just the, the clubs in Milan, but uh, for football fans the world over. I mean, it's, you know, t- for me, it's, it's an iconic venue that uh, uh, obviously was a host. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Of one of the stadiums for the World Cup in 1990. Anyway, um, Maury Gianni Infantino this week saying he's got uh, no interest in the European Super League. Uh, why would he, of course? He's more focused on the FIFA Club World Cup expansion, uh, which is going to feature 24 teams in 2022 held in China. Um, we haven't spoken a lot about this in this particular part of the world, but this is a massive opportunity, isn't it, for, for clubs in Australia? Because if you qualified for a FIFA Club World Cup, and all the money, extra money that's going to come from that, then that means that winning the Champions League is more valuable. Therefore, all of a sudden, there's, there's a value in qualifying for the Champions League. This, this changes everything. Nah, very much so, Simon. Look, it, it, it potentially could be enormous for, uh, for Australian clubs. Uh, we, don't, we don't have enough opportunity in Australia to really tap into to huge dollars through the, these major tournaments, do we? The ACL costs Australian clubs... Uh, at the moment, World Cup qualifiers and, and, and a World Cup uh, appearance, depending on how far you get in the tournament before you start to realise some serious dollars. So this would be a, a wonderful opportunity for, for Australian clubs. And as you rightly say, it then becomes, um, at the moment, the, 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 the AFC uh, Champions League and all that sort of stuff, people are not really invested in it, not in terms of finances, but in terms of the feeling of the competition. But if you start to then um, have the benefits in terms of, uh, you know, these kind of competitions, performances domestically that then translate to AFC that then get involved in world club expansion competitions, big dollars, big, big dollars comes to the game, which would be a huge bonus for Australian clubs, wouldn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. And you, you know, the thing is, Maury, that that's crazy. Like you said that the AFC doesn't invest in the Champions League here, yet here in Europe, the, the Champions League makes big money for all clubs. That's so it. how on earth can the clubs in like in Asia be costing them to play in the Champions League? They, they need to sort that out to actually make it actually profitable and actually so clubs really strive to go to the Champions League in Asia. Mm. Yeah, beggars belief really that uh, it's still not been monetized to the extent in which it should have been the Asian Champions League. Maybe that's about to change. And maybe the FIFA Club World Cup can help it change. Um, Guys, almost out of time in this segment. Uh, One final one. Uh, Harry Kuehl has had a better week this week. Uh, They got a win against Cheltenham during the week. His Oldham Athletic team with George Blackwood scoring his first goal for the Latex. Uh, And then they edged out Hampton and Richmond Borough in the first round of the FA Cup on uh, on Sunday by three goals to two. Uh, Maybe that's just bought Harry a little bit more time. Yeah, no, look, I mean, Harry's obviously uh, he's, you know, come into a new job and I think I said from day dot, and he also, he said it as well, Simon, uh, I'll need time. Uh, every manager lo- loves that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but look, Harry, Harry's got a, a, you know, a team that are playing decent football. They didn't really get the, the, the rub of the green early on in the season. Um and it's all about football results, as a few of our coaches have also experienced. And Pete Klamowski, you know, Muskie's doing it tough. Um, it's about winning football matches. So, look, I think H is on the right track. Um, I think he's got a club that um, that are supporting him, that have seen um, a change in approach, in professionalism, in style of play. He's he's had positive reports here in the in the UK, and it was also nice to see uh, George Blackwood. Um, 
be involved and also get his first goal. Simon, I think that will be a huge confidence booster for, for Georgie Blackwood. Um, you know what it's like, Spide. You've been there as a player. You don't really feel accepted unless you feel as if you're contributing. And if you're a striker, to, to be able to get that first goal under your belt, that'll be huge for George. Yeah, you know what? It's a, Oldham's one of the first teams I look at to see how they're travelling now because I actually want them to do well. Wherever the Aussies are around the world, I actually look for their teams, Maury, because I want them to be successful because I want to open the door again for other Aussies to get this opportunity. So we need Harry and George and, you know, us here at Xanthi and Muskie there at St. Truden and Ange over there. We need these guys to do well to open other doors. You see Trent Sainsbury as well got a... Got Brilliant. A Five, five, five. five. Rear shot. Did you see the goal? <laughs> Great oh, result. My, oh, my God. It was an offside that went horribly wrong. The right fullback, mate. He was sleeping. He's still sleeping. <laughs> talking, talking of offside, just to close, the Patrick Bamford disallowed goal for Leeds. And what is going on with football that we disallow that goal? For pointing where he wants the ball to be played. Yes, absolutely. What's just the, the sleeve? The, the sleeve. Oh. I, would like, I would like to know. I mean, you can't, people, the listeners can't see it, but I would like to see how many goals get scored from your shoulder to your end of your sleeve <laughs> in, a, in, in a year. How, how, how can that be offside, mate? The game has gone potty. <laughs> oh, but you, you've been in Scotland for too long, buds. Potty. I haven't heard you say that. Right. And I have a long sleeve on. <laughs> Boys, uh, thanks for the moment uh, We're going to move on to our final segment this week And we've got another great guest waiting for us In Footballers Lives Footballers Lives Our guest today was born in Bundaberg in 1993, with the Bundaberg Waves being his first junior club. Later, he attended the QAS and signed for then A-League outfit Gold Coast United. In 2012, he joined Newcastle Jets for two seasons before a big move to Italy with Fiorentina. Getting first-team appearances was tough in Italy. He was loaned to Empoli and Como, and he had to come back home to really establish himself with Sydney FC where he stayed three years and won two titles. He left the Sky Blues to join Melbourne City last season and reached the grand final again last year before heading off overseas to link up with Tony Popovich and Zelko Kalats as part of the Australian Revolution with Santi FC. He's played five times for Australia and was a part of the preliminary 26-man squad for the World Cup in Russia two years ago. It's a big podcast welcome to Josh Berlanti. How are you, Josh? Hey guys, yeah, I'm well, thanks. Yourself? Very good. How's life in, in Greece under Popper and Spider then? Yeah, it's been uh, straight into things since arriving. Uh, obviously, this, this past year has been a big whirlwind, so getting over here was um, it was a bit tricky, but we're, now that I'm over here and settled, um, you know, hit the ground running and been straight into a, a tough preseason, which has been great. Take us back to your uh, early days. In Bundaberg, Josh, um, I know that your, your dad was a big influence. I think he was involved with the Bundaberg Waves. Um, I've got a, a question from Nick Meredith as well, a former Brisbane Strikers player. Were you ever coached by Raoul Cunningham? Um, I'm trying to think of all the past coaches. <laughs> Not a good sign if you can't remember it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, going to, you know, I, being in a country town, you always going to regional places and, and the city of, of Brisbane to, to play games. So um, I can't, no, I can't really remember. Okay. What, what do you remember those early days? I mean, football is obviously a part of your DNA. Is it, was it a big part of your family growing up? Yeah, you know, obviously having Italian heritage. Um, dad played football and was always involved. So from as young as I can remember, I was um, out at the at the football pitch where all the games were, you know, from 7, 8 a.m. in the morning where the kids' game started to up until the night time and the senior games were. So, um, yeah, since I remember, I was always running around with the football on my feet and having an older brother too. Um, I was always chasing him, trying to catch up. Did, did you have a favourite team, Josh, overseas or in, even in Australia, I guess, when you were, when you were a kid or favourite players? Yeah, I did. When, um, you know, back then... Uh, 
the, the English Premier League games used to be on very early in the morning in Australia, four or five a.m. And I used to get up with dad and um, watch the Premier League. And my, my team was Chelsea. Um, and one of my favourite players was Zola. I used to love watching him play. Josh, I come across you early doors, mate, um, at Gold Coast United under um, Miron Blyberg and, and, and Clive Palmer. Uh, very interesting times at, at Gold Coast United. What was that like to, to be a part of for yourself as a young player? It was an amazing opportunity for myself. Um, like you said, it was a crazy, crazy times, but I look back on it um, thinking how lucky and grateful I am to have those opportunities because I know it's very hard um, you know, there's so many young, talented players that maybe never get the opportunity to kind of have find that path to make their way through to being a professional footballer. So, you know, coming from a, a, a small country town in Queensland to going to Brisbane, Gold Coast, um, you know, working my way up into the first team, Gold Coast United. Um, it was a lot of a lot of effort and a lot of work. You know. You know, my family did so much sacrifice for me to get to this place and get opportunities. But um, no, there was um, very, very fond memories. Yeah, I remember. I mean, I've spoken to your to your dad as well, and uh, obviously with your earlier days uh, with my role at FFA and mentoring and trying to to, to guide. Um, Mike Mulvey, did he play a big role in your in your earlier career? Because he was in, in control at that time with the youth squad, and he he was part of bringing you to Gold Coast United. Is that right? Yeah, huge, huge part of um, my development through those uh, teenage years, 15, 16, 17, 18. Um, that's when I initially made the move from Bundaberg to, to, to Brisbane and went to school there and joined the um, Queensland Academy of Sport. And yep. I think at that time they were going through a process where the football in the Queensland Academy of Sport was kind of getting pushed out. So a lot of plays there were not on contracts and it was just kind of, I was just there, not on a contract or anything, just a part of the team training every day and, you know, worked as hard as I could um, to, to better myself. And then Mike got the opportunity to coach the Gold Coast United youth team and he, he was able to bring a few players from the QIS along and I was lucky to be one of those players and then just, you know, tried to work hard from there to work my way out. Josh, we've got a, a Twitter question from RR who uh, asks if Clyde Palmer didn't pull the funding, do you think that Gold Coast would have succeeded? And, and how good was that National Youth League winning side that you were a part of? Yeah, it's, it's a tough, tough to answer. I mean, it's an unbe- unbelievable place to live. Um, I think looking back, if you speak to past players that were in that in that team, you know, it would have been great to see that team continue on um, and have a, a second team in, in Queensland. Um, but it just didn't work, pan out that way. So hopefully in the future, um, you know, we're able to maybe have another team in Queensland. And um, to the second part of that question was our youth team there was uh, fantastic. We had a lot of uh, players um, that Went up into first team football, um, likes of uh, Ben Halloran, um, Zach Anderson, um, Chris Harold. Uh, I think we won it two or three years in a row there, so we had a, a really good team. I guess I guess we'll never know what uh, could have become of that uh, Gold Coast United club. Um, you, you moved on, as we mentioned, to Newcastle Jets, where you sort of properly emerged as an A League player. Um, probably a time of struggle really for the club. I know that they finished eighth and seventh during your two seasons there, but uh, playing alongside the likes of Emil Heskey and Q Yarlins and Michael Bridges and, and Joel Griffiths, uh, that must have been a, a good learning curve for a young footballer as you then were. Yeah, huge. Um, I, you know, I was at the Gold Coast United Youth. I was able to get a first team contract at Gold Coast and you know, for me, it was all the start. I was so excited, you know, professional football. I just, just finished school. And I remember I, I remember where I was in Gold Coast when we got that, that call that, you know, the club was going to fold. And I was just thinking to myself, you know, what am I going to do now? Where am I going from here? And um, I was lucky enough to get an opportunity at the Jets. And I think I kind of grasped that thinking, you know, anything can happen and, like you said, to play along some of those players um, was a great experience for me. And, you know, that helped me 
along the way develop as a, as a player and, and a person as well, which I think is massive. And, and of course, as being a kid of Italian descent, um, you had a good season 2013, you won Young Player of the Year, and you played against a certain Alessandro Del Piero that uh, season as well as you, as you beat Sydney FC. That must have been quite special for a kid of your background, I imagine. Yeah, it was. I mean, that was a name that was brought up all the time when I was younger. So it was someone that I was very familiar with. Um, and to be playing against him was massive. And I, I remember some of those games we played against him. And, um, you know, the, the talent he had was was phenomenal. And I think I was just in awe playing against him. Um, so, you know, some great memories there. And, you know, I was lucky enough to, after the game to get his assigned jersey uh, from him after the game. So that was a great He's memory. still got that, I take it. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, talk, talking of Italy, you then got you this huge move to Fiorentina in 2014 uh, and made your debut very quickly against Roma at the Estadio Olimpico. I, I had a look yesterday when I was researching our, our chat at, at the names that were involved in that fixture. It, I'll, I'll just reel a few of them off. You'll be aware of this, but our listeners might not be. So your t- some of your teammates were Mario Gomez, Stefan Savic, Boria Valero, and you're up against a Roma side that includes Francesco Totti, Ashley Cole, Daniela De Rossi, Nangolan, uh, and Miralem Pjanic. I mean, th- th- these are not small names in the world of football. And there you are, a, a kid from Bundaberg in your first sort of days in, in Serie A, and you're thrown straight in from the off. That must have been a, a heck of a thrill. Yeah, it, was, um, it all happened so quick. I, I remember heading over there, heading straight into pre-season camp. And we went away for about four to six weeks, you know, through South South America and um, had some pre-season games there. And I just took the head on and straight into training the games and was doing really well. And um, I just didn't know what to expect being so young and coming from football in Australia to football in Europe is such a big change. Um, and then coming into the first game away in Roma, I was in the starting lineup. I just kind of like in the meetings leading to, I just, I didn't have a clue that I was going to start. And um, I was excited. I wasn't, everyone asked me, you know, were you so nervous going out to the, um, into the game? But I was, I wasn't actually that, that nervous. I was more excited and just ready for the, the occasion. And then it just all come tumbling down straight after that. Josh, question, right? Because I've been in a foreign dressing room where, the meeting that is taking place for preparation for a game happens in the, the normal language. I'm sitting in there. I'm assuming you're sitting in your, in your dressing room in Italy preparing for that game. Got no idea what's being said at the team meeting. How was that translated to you? It wasn't. Um, yeah. I didn't, you know, yeah, it was weird. I, I, never, I didn't actually have a translator translating thing. The coach could speak a little bit of English, but didn't really speak English to me. Um, there were some English-speaking players in the team, and I think they tried to help me as best they could, but nothing was really said. It was I was trying to take everything in and just try and work out what was going on. And even in the training sessions, some players would give indications of what we need to do, but nothing was – no one come up to me and said, okay, this is what he said, this is what we've got to do. I just had to figure it out myself. So, Josh, why did it go so wrong in that game? Because you, you got dragged, didn't you, after 35 minutes, I think it was. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that was your only start for Fiorentina, as it as it turned out. Um, what, what happened? Um, well, I mean, I don't. I still to this day don't know exactly why I was taken off. Um, where, what happened from my memory was there was I lost the ball near the halfway line, then passes a few things across, come out, shot. Eventually, they scored. One nil to them. Five minutes after that, I was taken off. Nothing was said to me after the game or ever after that. And I was just kind of waiting for someone to maybe say, you know, you made a mistake, you got taken off, fair enough. Or it was a tactical thing or I'm not sure. It was just never spoken about. And, and that was the thing that probably frustrated me the most was no one actually said, mm. you know, um- you had to sort of move on from Fiorentina to get some game time. You went to Empoli, which, uh, again, you didn't play very much. Uh, but you did manage to get uh, a fair few games in with, with Como in Serie B. Did, did that sort of help you 
readjust to, to life in Europe in some ways, that, that spell with Coma? Um, the playing, playing more games was, was great and it was nice to be able to play matches um, at a good level, good players, you know, in, in a league where you have to fight every game. Um, but again, it was, I was in a position there where the start of the season, a couple of months in, we had a new coach. Halfway through the season, half the team got scrapped. Yeah. 50% of players come in. Then we had a new coach again. We ended up having three coaches in the one season. Team got last, I think relegated and de- I think declared bankruptcy, went down to non-league. So it, was, it wasn't it was a nice year to, to finish on for me. And I think uh, after that season, my head was kind of gone. And, you know, I just wanted to get back to enjoying playing football and, and, and wanting to win. And I think that's what's sparked my move to go back to Australia. Well, you, you certainly did uh, that with Sydney. Uh, the three years with the, with the Sky Blues, probably fair to say the best of your career so far with um, Graham Arnold and then Steve Corrigan, really getting the best out of you. And that partnership with, with Brandon O'Neill was one of the major uh, uh, key parts of Sydney's success, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Some of my most, most fond memories um, were those three years, you know, you played football to win trophies and we won a handful of trophies over those uh, few years. So um, the feeling within that team at that time just felt like nothing could stop us. And we were just on, on a ball. And I think the, the positivity and the culture in the, in the team at that point was um, at, the, at a top level. And I think everyone could feel it and see it. You obviously felt it was, it was time for a change in 2019. Um, you ended up signing for Melbourne City, but before then there was the chance to go to Korea with with Pohang Steelers, but but that fell through. What what was the issue with that particular transfer? I don't know where it exactly went wrong, um, but I think it was leading into finals times, and um, you know obviously the club didn't want to let me go, um, and it just kind of I'm not sure exactly where it fell through and what went wrong, but in the end I didn't end up going. Um, stayed in Sydney finished off the season and that winning the grand final. So it was great to finish off that year on, on a high. Um, but then I think the, the move to, to Melbourne after, I think I just needed a bit more of a, a change and something new to keep that motivation for me to keep striving to hit the, stay at the top level. You know, I think um, after winning everything at, at Sydney, it became a little bit like, you know, just uh, easy to, things were just going to happen. And I didn't want it to. I didn't want to feel like that. Uh, the the move to Melbourne City was, was a big success. Um, you got to the grand final. You also got to the the FFA Cup final. You, you didn't win either, unfortunately. But uh, you, did you enjoy your time with with Melbourne City? Yeah, I did. Again, another top club in the A League. You know, uh, Manchester City now own the club, and they're running the club really well they've got top facilities there and they're trying to do everything they can to make it a top club in in the early in terms of um the way they want to play uh the resources um you know the culture in the club striving to win everything and be the best so it was another great year um the last year at melbourne city right and you you've had the opportunity then to go and work with um Big chops here that we've got on. Big Zelko, Kalach and, and Popper. Um, Zanti FC, Josh. But how, how different has it felt even in the, the earlier stages? We touched on your move to Italy and how tough that was because probably no networks. Going to another country, but having some familiar faces. How have you found that? Yeah, it's, um, it's different. Straight away, I knew from having a little bit of experience in Italy, I knew it wasn't going to be easy. Um, you know, you're changing your whole life, moving across the world. The footballing world in Europe is so different. It's a doggy dog world. So to be able to have the likes of Zelko and, and Popper and some of the Aussie boys, it has made it nice and a little bit more comfortable. You know, you can speak to someone who's from the same place as you, same language. That makes it easy, that's for sure. But um, when it comes down to the, the actual football, you got to make sure that you're switched on, you're doing everything so that you, you're cementing your spot on the team. 
I'm sure Popper will uh, ensure that that is the case. Uh, Josh, he's a hard taskmaster. I'm um, just going to finish off with uh, with a couple of Twitter questions. Um, this is our question of the week. Uh, $100 voucher for Outback Steakhouse goes to Ivan Hasemovic this week, who asks, um, Josh, over the years you've played a, a few times in more advanced roles, uh, which Eric Mombert seemed to do a couple of times last season for Melbourne City. What do you prefer and is number six your best position? Because as Maury mentioned, you've you played fullback a fair few times as well. Yeah. I always wonder about this, actually. It is a good question because, um, like Craig was saying, in the younger years, I, I, I was always a midfielder when I was young and then in that period where I went to QAS in Gold Coast, I played a lot in right fullback, um, which I enjoyed getting up and down the flank. Um, then back into midfield again. Uh, it's a tough one. I think overall I'd probably have to say number six, but I did enjoy those periods attacking midfield and getting forward. Um, sometimes I feel like in a number six, I'm a bit restricted and, you know, sometimes I've got a bit more burst of energy where I want to get forward and try and get in the box and score some goals. Um, but I'd, I'd probably have to say number six. Is Popper going to play? Well, that's good. You'll be nice and restricted this year. <laughs> <laughs> what position do players find? <laughs> nice and restricted, Maury. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no. Joshy, I got a, I got a couple of questions that I got to ask you, mate. That the listeners always like to hear, mate. Your favourite ground that you played at, and the biggest dungeon you've played at. Oh, good question. Um, playing at um, playing at Roma's Stadium was that was quite quite an atmosphere. I mean, just the buzz, just the constant buzz. Even in the warm up, the buzz around the stadium was just so loud and the stadium was full being first game of the season um even oh, that yeah that was quite quite amazing experience um but when they went away back to sydney fc we played against uh the wanderers first game at anz stadium that was about sixty-two thousand, yeah and that was quite a good great experience to you know the derby match first game of the season and we spanked them 4-0 too, so... <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, always, it always makes it easier to remember, doesn't it? <laughs> and what's the biggest dungeon? Oh. Oh, I've played on plenty of those. I'm just trying to think of one in particular. Many, many of them, mate. Many of them. Yeah, many of them I, will do. I honestly can't think of one in particular, but... There's been many cow paddocks that we've played on. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, Josh, by the way, I speak to Spider. He raves about the facilities at Zanti. He raves about them. Mate, is he, is he telling porky pies or is it a, a top setup at Zanti FC? No, it is good. They, um, they've got the, a great skeleton there of everything that you want as a footballer in, in a club. Um, it's a little bit old. It's kind of, it needs a little bit of a a few things kind of a new equipment or you know move the showers redone that kind of thing but as in they've got the gym there they've got the offices there um they've got the two training pitches they've got ice bars saunas physio rooms big change room for the players you know shed for the boots everything you want stadiums right there it's uh it is a great setup um, Josh, we'll finish with this one from uh, Nick, who asks, uh, do you feel this move to Zanti will put you in a, a good place to push for a Socceroos spot? So this is the one area that we haven't sort of touched upon. Uh, you, you did win five caps for your country, but your international career has been a bit stop-start, hasn't it? Yeah, that's right. I think that was a big part of me um, thinking forward. You know, I still feel like I've got plenty of years left in the tank and I'm just kind of just getting, you know, I feel like I've still got plenty more in me so getting back and in, into the soccer ruse mix was a big big part of that and I think being in the in the European shop window and the opportunity you never know what can happen so um, again I, I want to keep my mind pushing myself um, and I think coming back to you it was um, that opportunity for me so I'm, I'm happy that I'm over here. Well, Josh, we, uh, we wish you all the very best with uh, your second coming in Europe, if, if that's the best way to put it. And um, 
We do thank you so much for joining us uh, today. I'm sure Spider and Popper will keep you in line over there in Greece. And uh, yeah, good luck, mate, when the season eventually starts. Yeah, that's it. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Josh, good good luck, mate. Uh, And also, you said at the start, four to six weeks uh, training camps that you had in in Italy. Be careful what ideas you give Popper and Spider. (laughs) (laughs) Good on you, Josh. Thanks, mate. And that is Josh Brillante, and that is us for this this week. Join us again next week, same time, same place. Until then, it's bye for now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.